Welcome to Season 5 of Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching the show. Enjoy. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Bazanson, who is a seasoned professional in the training and coaching industry for nearly 20 years in a variety of roles, skilled in one-on-one coaching, learning and e-learning management, project management, sales, CRM, contact center training, and developing customer experience models. Empathy is always part of the conversation. Welcome, Sarah, to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here for having me. So, yeah, I'm thrilled. And you know, we, we, well, I learned about you in the most unusual of ways, or maybe it's not that unusual nowadays, but you're, you, you posted something on LinkedIn and it kind of went viral um, and it came across my, uh, my feed. And so I want to start there. I had to call for some tech support yesterday. While we waited for a diagnostic program to load, the gentleman on the phone made some small talk. He asked me where I was and I told him, and then I asked him the same. New Delhi, he said softly. I paused. Oh, and how are you doing? He broke down. I'm sorry, he wept. I'm so sorry, it's really bad here. I've lost someone every day for 10 days. Every single day. I cannot imagine. I tried to offer some comfort, told him to forget the issue I'd called about, that he had nothing to be sorry for, that we could talk if he needed to, or just leave the line open in silence so he could take a break from the phones and hold space for his grief. We stayed on the phone for almost an hour, just being humans. We live in a connected world. You never know who you are reaching when you call a toll-free line or jump into a chat. There's a person on the other end that may be valiantly showing up and doing their best while they are living through absolute hell. Please be kind. What a beautiful message. I got goosebumps and I've read that a few times already. What inspired you to write that? What was that experience like and what happened after you posted? Um, Well, I mean, I, I was really thoughtful about writing anything about it because it's not entirely my story. Um, there's a person there who I reached in a moment where they were obviously very vulnerable. Um, and I really, I, I, at first I really hesitated about saying anything and I actually rewrote that multiple times to try to anonymize it as much as I could without removing the context of New Delhi, which has been so devastated by this wave of COVID-19. Um, two things really kind of pushed me to find a way to get that message out there. One was just how moved I was by that experience and by, by being in that moment, um, with someone else and, and realizing the impact that that could have or could not have, could, could be you could do more damage or you could try to do something helpful um and certainly ignoring what i was hearing was not an option you know like saying oh i'm just gonna withdraw and 
get yourself together, please. It's so uncomfortable for me that you're having these feelings. Not at all. Um, and the other thing that was really, I've, I've worked in contact center training, uh, and I know the kind of pressure that they, they face. It was also really top of mind what was going on in both the context of COVID and how reliant we've become on all of our digital tools. And we'd had a really great example of it just that very week. On the Monday of that week, that was the day of a massive Rogers outage across mm -hmm. Canada. So starting the work week, people with their businesses, their cell phones, their ability to transact, all of that got hit. Not within the control of a person on the telephone, but they're the ones who are receiving the pressure and the hate and the anger and the rage and the, you know, you have to fix this for me immediately. And they, there's really not a lot that they can do other than acknowledge and empathize and track the issue and recognize the frustration being caused to others in that. And I, I really was, was thoughtful about the fact that many of those people are probably in exactly that same setting. So many of these contact center experiences we have do reach people overseas and, you know, kind of imagining someone who's really frustrated because they can't get into their phone and they want to tweet with their friends, calling and expressing that kind of anger and, and outrage to someone who's trying to show up and not able to say, I lost my mother three days ago. My entire family is sick right now. I have to surrender my phone and put it in a locker because these are secure environments. I have to spend my day wondering if I'm going to open that locker at the end of the day to a series of text messages letting me know who else has died. And I, I, I can't, I can't, I, for me, I wouldn't be able, I would be completely dysfunctional in that context. I can't imagine having to answer a phone and attend to others as what I have to do every moment of every day on a job and bring my courtesy and bring my kindness when when the, the scales are so imbalanced in terms of who needs support in that moment. Um, so, so when you were on the call with him, do you think it's like your general kindness and empathy as a person or your professional um, training as somebody who understands like call center dynamics very well or a mixture of both? Like what allowed you to show up in the way that you did that day? Um, I, I don't, I don't think it, I think I would respond the same way if I'd met someone on the street. I don't, I mean, the, the call center context is one that is specific in this because that entire job is so service oriented and oriented towards your customer. Um, but I, I would hope that that would be something that wouldn't require that context, you know, that whoever you're seeing that is in that kind of pain um, and in, in need of that kind of support is just as visible. So you, you shared what happened. You were moved to share. Um, I, I heard you say earlier, you know, you rewrote it a few times because you wanted to make sure to, you know, honor the, the individual. Um, and then what happened? Um, well, it was very surprising. Uh, not generally very active on LinkedIn. It's, you know, it's a useful platform, but I, I'm not 
a participant in posting generally beyond sort of, oh, you've changed jobs, congratulations, good luck with your new role. Um, and the first week, there was sort of a slow build and, you know, some lovely comments that were made. And then it got picked up in a couple of Indian newspapers. And I woke up one morning to over a hundred new connection requests and a, a, a sea of messages. Um, and I, I was stunned. And that, that continued for about a week of just this overwhelm of, of contacts. Um, and some were really lovely. Some were, were expressing support for the same message or sharing experiences that they've had, uh, things that they've been trying to be more conscious and mindful of in the context of everything going on in the world. Um, some also had support they were looking for for their own grief. You know, you'd get a message from someone that would start with, I saw your post, I really loved that, thanks for sharing. And you'd send a note back saying, you know, I appreciate your support, lovely to connect with you. And you'd see those three dots going and you knew there was more. And then the next message that would come in would be, it resonated with me because I lost my brother last week. You know, um, my best friend who's my age died. And it, it just, so there was, there was a lot of, of that. And those were the, the really good sides of, of the experience. Um, there was certainly a lot more by ways of support and echoing and amplifying of that kind of message of there are things that are more important than the business of the day always. Um, there were also some who in, in fairness, um, raised concerns for that individual. And it was another reason why it was important to me to not be overly disclosing about, you know, I called this specific business at this specific time. Um, because some employers are not very understanding of that. And in a quality assurance kind of way, you know, people were saying, well, he could get in a lot of trouble for that, you know, there, there are service level agreements on call handle time, and that was an unproductive hour for the business. I, I have to hope that any business supporting its employees through this kind of environment um, would do better. And one of the things that was really heartening in accepting so many connection requests from people I didn't know were also that I saw some examples, beautiful examples of things that employers in India were doing to support their team members. There was one that that I, I still, I think about it and I think, well, this is the way, you know, if everyone can do that, please do that. Um, it started with posting four names with the links to their profiles and confirming that these were four team members who'd been lost to COVID-19. And then he went on to say, we know their families are in grief. We know also that our staff are scared. You're scared not only about yourself, but of what might happen if you are someone who is also impacted by this. So we can't bring anyone back. We can only honor their lives and their contributions and support those who remain. So we will pay two years salary to the families right away. And we will support any school age kids up to age 18 with all their school fees. And you know, that kind of gesture, it, it doesn't look the same for everybody because 
people's toolbox of what they can make available is, is not always equal. But there is always something. There is always something that can be done. And those kinds of examples, I hope, are also um, being viewed as models that, that others can follow because no one should be working under that kind of pressure and be made to feel like these are normal times. It's not normal times. You can't be expected to pretend they are. Wow, you know, I'm so I'm so moved by everything that you're saying because um, we do take for granted, you know, those you know call one eight hundred number, and mm. we know that it's offshoring, and 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 of course this is a very surreal kind of extenuating circumstance. COVID right now, this last like year and a bit. But mm-hmm. even so, even without that, like we're all the walking wounded and all walking around with stuff going on in our lives. And it doesn't have to be abroad. It could be the person walk, you're walking by on the street. But since you've mm-hmm. worked in this context before, what do you think you would want to share with people who are making those calls? Because, for example, as a client, I've been on both extremes, right? I've had very dynamic conversations where I've probably stepped into the rude um, but I've also, and and I don't, I'm not uh, pleased to tell, to say that out loud, you know, and, and, and to own We've that. all done it. It's okay. We've all done it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's happened to all of us. Uh, but it's, it feels even worse because I like, you know, I'm the empathy gal, right? So like, I really should, you know, do better. And I have, I have over years gotten better at that, but I'm not perfect. But then I've also like had calls where. I've requested to speak to the manager to say how great they were, you know, so I've done both, but what would you offer as, as food for thought for people who Mm -hmm. are making those calls to a customer care representative Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to empathy? Well, I think you landed on something important there is that it, it is actually different for everyone and you can be a really empathetic person who also has moments where that falls off the table. You know, you're focused on other things. You're focused on yourself. You're focused on a pressure to get something done quickly. Um, so I, I think first is we, we also have to recognize that we as callers are humans too and fallible to that. Um, but I, I think I think it can look different for everyone. Um, and not everyone's vocabulary and way of demonstrating empathy is going to be the same. So you may need to balance both those things as the caller. Uh, one of the things actually that I find really interesting in, in the, the space is early on when I was working much more in the quality assurance space, technology was still trying to catch up to voice recording systems and being able to listen to hear oh my gosh, was there a problem in that call? Did somebody get upset? And what they'd be listening for were things like swear words, raised voices, yelling. But what I more often hear, um, and where I think it's, it's the balance, is people taking a very controlled tone. Like, you may have some frustration, but we're not going to fall into the kind of abusive conversation It's things like, I'm going to repeat my need. It hasn't been understood. I'm going to give voice to the fact that this isn't the resolution that I was expecting or hoping for that meets my expectation. But I'm not going to put it on the back of 
the individual to whom I'm speaking, because almost inevitably, that person is already offering you everything that is within their control. You know, they're, they're, they're offering you what they have in their toolbox to resolve something. They're taking that concern seriously. If you're saying it's not meeting my expectation, they're documenting, you know, in their, their notes, this wasn't someone who was satisfied or I'm going to let my supervisor, my team lead know um, so that we can at least start to gather those experiences and see how as an organization we might be able to do better. Those decisions are not in their hands in that moment. Um, so I think that really is, is the best balance. I don't think we can ask ourselves to not be emotional beings who face those frustrations, but I think we can ask of ourselves that we don't, that we be conscious of the fact that those with whom we're connecting are as a general rule already offering us everything that they can. So we're going to shift gears in a second because we've got also another big part of your life to unpack because you are an organ donor, but pause for a second. I want to ask one last question. What kind of practices do call centers or, or, or those kind of spaces um, deploy to allow the employees to integrate and kind of laugh it off and kind of also recalibrate? Because if they're getting a lot of vitriol all day, um, there must be some like, you know, you gotta, you're wearing it. Right. And yeah, so what do you, yeah. what, what do they do? What are the practices to kind of resettle? They don't go home and be nasty to their kids or their spouse. Yeah. I, I think it really depends, unfortunately, on business to business. Some are great. Um, certainly one thing that I think is always helpful, whether it's on the phones or um, in a, a retail context, because you see this in live environments as well customer service people get quite beat up, um, is being organizationally willing to offer someone a break and take them at their word. If somebody on your team comes to you and says, I just had a really terrible call that I had to manage with someone who was abusive, um, I, I need to take 10, you know, and reset. Be willing first off to give them that time. Um, be willing to support them if they want to talk about that experience um, because it can, it can be all like people can say very racist things. Um, they can say very, very misogynistic things. They can, there, it doesn't, when it gets escalated and heated like that, it often falls, goes way outside the realm of this service, this price point, is this working, this product and it, it cuts to, I'm going to take you down person on the phone or person at that cash desk. Um, so making space for it, recognizing that number one, they don't need to tolerate that and empowering staff to say, these are kind of the boundary lines where, yeah, absolutely. You have the right to end that interaction, you know, whether on the phone or on a chat or in a store, you can request that person leave, you know, yeah. if that's, if that line gets crossed, that's okay. We give you absolute support in making that decision because you're not here to be abused. Um, and the other thing is also just to, to be willing to have the conversation after, whether it's in the form of, I need a break or 
I need to get this off my chest because this is what was said to me to simply have someone with an empathetic ear listen and support them. Um, I think those are two really important things that employers can do to support those who are providing frontline customer service. Yeah, great. And I can relate because I was um, uh, on a crisis line for Montreal Sexual Assault Center and we had a modality that like if we had a tough call, we could speak to our backup, like a backup volunteer just to debrief. So that really resonates for me. Um, I'm just wondering as a last question before we move on, Mm -hmm. have you seen a big change at a sort of aggregate level over the last few years in terms of the kinds of calls and the volume and just the Because I'm thinking like that must be such a signal to the way we are living our lives that we are ready to take somebody down. Like we obviously are full of like rage or hostility (laughs) that we have a call with a perfect stranger. We want to take them down. Like has, has that gotten worse over time? Um, well, I'm, I'm not, my, my most recent role has not been related to contact centers, so I'm not sure I'm best positioned to speak to the most immediate trends. Um, but I would have to hazard as a guess that yes, it is getting worse. Um, I think one of the, the, there are some amazing things about the kind of connectivity that we have available to us now through the internet, through social media platforms. But I think it has also decreased our patience. Um, It has increased our kind of sense of of detachment from the fact that behind all of that are humans as well. You know, we're we're willing to to see something someone says and we disagree and right there, you know, take that. And I have my moment of feeling okay about myself. And then Maybe I look back at that and go, I wouldn't have said that to your face. Right. I wouldn't have treated, I, I wouldn't have felt, comf- I would have felt ashamed to do that person and to have that attached to me. So why am I giving myself, why am I less aware in this kind of space when it's a phone, when it's a stranger, when it's uh, a post on LinkedIn or whatever else from a platform standpoint? So I, I, there's a lot of good that has come from that kind of connectivity, but I think it's also led to a loss of human connectivity, of kind of emotional intelligence that we infuse um, in our our interactions in those spaces. Yeah, 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 I hear you on that. Okay, so we will now switch gears. Um, and thank you for all that. Um, a few years ago when I was doing my, my research for my doctoral work, um, I came across a bunch of literature that looked at sort of the extremes of empathy um, mm-hmm. in a positive way. And the literature always kind of pointed in the direction of like the biggest act of empathy that exists is like the act of like giving an organ to someone. And here you are as an organ donor. So um, I would love to unpack what the on-ramp was in terms of your thinking, what the experience was and any kind of how you've integrated that into your life, how you see things differently. Has it changed Mm -hmm. you? Has it changed the way you look at yourself or empathy? So all of that. Sure. 
Um, well, it was a very long journey in my case um, that started with someone in my extended family uh, who went into end-stage renal failure. And as that disease progressed, um, it's a, a quite predictable course with renal failure. You start to see decline of function, and then you reach a point sort of between 10 and 20% function where they say, it's up to you to make the call as to whether or not this is too much and you go on dialysis. When you're at 10% or lower, you, you, you can't live. So you need dialysis. Um, and he'd certainly reached that stage and was also in a very difficult category for whom to find a donor match. Uh, I also have a very dear friend who I've known for 25 years for whom uh, kidney disease runs in the family. And she has multiple generations who have both needed and donated organs. So I knew it was possible um, through her uh, and seeing that she had successfully received a, a donor kidney and is thriving. Um, and I was, I was curious to first think, is, is this something that I would even be eligible for? Like, who knows what's going on in there? Maybe, th maybe they're rotten. Huh? Um, so I, I went in to start the testing process and I was actually quite surprised to find that apparently I grow great kidneys. Woo. <laughs> um, who knew? Um, so once you're, once they, they recognize that you have the ability to donate, the next question is, do you want to, you know, is that something now that you have that piece of the puzzle, let's really think about this because at this point that's sort of could be go time. Um, in my case, I was not a direct match for the person in my life. Uh, who was in need. So we went into the paired exchange program where they try to match up mismatched chains across the country. Uh, and it was a really long process. We were in that for five years. They run this, these cycles every four months, um, trying to find pairs. And there were some challenges because you know, he was in a, a more challenging category on blood type and other important markers for health um, to find a match. So we actually didn't on the first pass, even on that cycle. So it came as a surprise to me. They call you after the, the system is run through. And I was like, here we go again. We've got another call saying it's run, no match. We'll run again in four months. And out of the blue one day at the office, uh, the donor coordinator called me to say, we've had a chain that broke and you and Tony are the repair. If you're ready to go, this would be imminent. This would be in the next few weeks. And I, I couldn't, I mean, it, it had been such a long time that it almost felt at that point like it would never happen. And that you just, you know, you, you stayed in it on a wing and a prayer. But, and, and that was it. And two weeks later, I was, two weeks later, exactly, he was in surgery. And two weeks in a day, I was in surgery. So, um. But it was, it was really, um, at the beginning, it really felt like something that I needed to explore and to do for a lot of reasons. Um, the first being just them and their family. Um, the, my, my recipient, my kidney buddy, is my husband's cousin's husband. 
Um, he's an amazing dad, an amazing person, like just one of the kindest, most generous people I know. Uh, so is his wife. She is a, a fierce mama bear and an amazing advocate who dedicates huge amount of energy to supporting families of kids with autism and to advocating for services for them um, on behalf of certainly their son, who's this wonderful, brilliant little guy, Charlie. My gosh, I can't believe how big he is. <laughs> I can't believe how big he is. Um, but also on behalf of community and the idea of, of losing that. I mean, I, I could just see how much they, they need and rely on each other. And it was not acceptable to me to think there's something that could help here. There's something that maybe could be done. This isn't one of those circumstances where somebody has a terminal diagnosis, where there is no, no outcome other than that. There's something that could work here. I lost my mom when I was two to something that nobody could have done anything about at the time. But if there had been something, I sure as hell hope somebody would have tried, you know? So that was, that was what pushed me to kind of explore that. And I also had a lot of support in being able to ask questions safely because through my friend who had already been through this received her own kidney um, that came as a result of a paired match and her sister became a donor. So she was very open in saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy to speak with you about it, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that kind of openness really said to me, this, this, this is maybe something that I can actually do. Um, and so, the call came. <laughs> so, it, okay. All right. That is so, it's so wildly fascinating because we all want to believe that we're good people and that we'd step up. Right. And that's what you said was like, you know, here's a circumstance where I could just step up and it would be an important way to step up for another family. So I wonder two things. One is when you originally went in for the testing, was there a part of you that I don't know whether it's like subconscious or latent or whatever, that's kind of hoping that you're not like a viable donor, because then at least you could say like, I would have, but I am not, you know, like when I give, when I gave blood once I fainted and okay. they said, you're not a, a, a good blood donor. So please don't. Mm -hmm. So I could be like, well, I'm not allowed to, to give blood. You know, I would if I could, but I'm not allowed, you know, like there's a part of that. So I'm just wondering. And then when you realize that you could, was it all of a sudden, like, oh my God, now I really have to think about myself. Mm -hmm. And and then there's the question of you're thinking about another family and the upside for them. But, you know, I just watched a man walk by in the window behind you. I assume that's your husband. I don't know if you have any children, mm -hmm. but like you have your own family too. Yeah. And there must've been fears, like you're putting yourself at risk to a certain extent as well. So like, how did you grapple with all that? Um, well, I, I think I was surprised to have been approved um, because, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't claim that I've lived the healthiest life. I have lots of bad habits. I'm a smoker. Uh, I drink a, a, an amount of coffee that I don't think anyone would recommend. Um, but to me, getting the confirmation. So I, I don't think that I went into it with a lot of optimism that I would be approved. Um, but when I learned that I was, that actually made me feel more 
more immediately inclined to say, well, that's, that's the sign, you know, that's the sign that this is meant to be. Um, and as relates to others in my life, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I say it, it is, it's a, it's an interesting thing to explore. One of the things they're very careful about in supporting potential donors when you get into this process is making certain that you have the supports in place and that you're also going into it under no duress, no pressure from outside sources, that this is authentically something that you are choosing to do. Um, and that's a really important piece because I, I this surprised me, but I joined um, a donor's a kidney donor support group, a private group on Facebook, and people share experiences and encourage each other. And I, I, I kind of thought that'll be a community where most people have the same views and the same opinions. And one day I was like, why are all these notifications going off suddenly? Like, why am I, I do I need to unsubscribe from like every time there's activity? Because there's a lot. And I went on to look at it and there was this kind of flame war that had started because someone who came from a family where end-stage renal failure was pretty endemic and everybody was getting it, they were all recipients and those who weren't in failure were also all donors. And they re they used the phrase, share your spare. Um, well, for others in the donor community, they're raising a hand saying like, I don't like that language. It's not a spare. A spare is something you're not using. This is an organ my body is actively using. Um, and there's a kind of pressure and coercion to say, you should be doing this. If you could, you should. Well, there are a lot of reasons why that's not available to everybody. Um, that was indeed my husband, um, but we don't have kids. And that's one thing that for a lot of people is, and I, I understand it completely, you can only give one kidney. If you have kids of your own, you're probably the most likely match for them and they for you. Um, so there may be other health concerns that play in. There may not be the supports in place for you to be able to take the time you need to recover. So it's not something that's universally available to everybody. Um, and those are all really good reasons to, to not ever pressure anyone or make it or position it as something that everyone should be able to consider and everyone should be able to do. And it's, it's, you know, are you a good person or are you not a good person? Oh, you could cause yours are healthy, but you didn't shame on you. No, there are really complex things that factor in to that decision. Um, and you, you asked earlier, you know, did it change my outlook? Yeah. There are some things that um, I didn't anticipate as outcomes from this that have really enriched my life. Um, I mentioned losing my mom when I was very small and it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious thing, but knowing that she died at age 34, I kind of grew up with a, a, just an ingrained expectation that I didn't expect to be here this long myself, you know, that, that any sort of illness that was raised, I, I didn't have an optimism that somebody could have a good outcome. And that's, that's changed markedly. Like I, I, I now see people, you know, and I'm, I'm at an age now where those things are starting to happen more where you're like, Oh, okay. A friend with breast cancer, a friend with uh, endometriosis, a friend with, 
all of these things that are, are cropping up that we're feeling more. And I, I don't feel the same kind of fatalistic sense that them's the breaks. What a bummer. There's no way anybody can do anything to help. Um, so that, that really has been transformative. And how about the relationship with the recipient? How's that been? It's, it's special. It is special. It is one that I will not have with any other person on this earth. Um, that's my kidney buddy. Um, and it, it, I think one of the things that, um, we're, we're in a, uh, I think a, a good place, uh, with it now. I think there was a big sense of, we need to do something grand to, you know, repay this, you know, here, what, how can we, how can we repay this? We'll send you on a trip. We'll do. And for me, like, I, it, we finally got into a place where we can, I think all see that I already got my gift. My gift is that feeling that I just talked about, about the, the change of perspective, but it's also seeing you together. It's knowing that you're there for your son. My mom had no choice. She couldn't be here for me. You can now be there for this precious, amazing little boy. You can be there and be present and not be sick, not be exhausted all the time, not have to surrender three nights of your week every week to going to the hospital for six hours for dialysis, never being able to leave town or take a holiday because you can't be away from that kind of treatment. You can, you can have your life. And I, I, I'm so that, that is something that means so much to me to see. And especially through pandemic, like I can't imagine seeing my cousin struggling with her wonderful young son alone through this past 14 months, like knowing that they have each other to lean on, that's the gift. Yeah, wow, that's so beautiful. I'm so moved by that, really. That is, that is so beautiful. Um, I have a last question and I ask my guests at the end of the podcast um, the same question and I've come to love this question. Sorry, you've been super, super generous with all of your time. Um, but if you'll indulge, is there something that comes to mind, a story of when you were on the receiving end of empathy, mm -hmm. what I call purposeful empathy, so empathy on purpose, um, and what it meant for you? Um, yes, and it would actually be related very much to the donation. Um, so I mentioned that it came at a time that I really wasn't anticipating because we'd already been told for that cycle, no match, no luck, you're out again. I didn't, I didn't anticipate anything more even being possible for at least the next four months. So as you do in your work life, you start to schedule things, you start to make plans, you commit to projects. Um, and I was about a, a year, uh, actually not quite a year at that point, into a new job. So this call came, and these are very time-sensitive decisions that impact many people because that's a whole chain now. You know, six donors, six recipients. If it doesn't go for you, it doesn't go for anybody. So the weight of that came kind of crashing down. And the first thing that I did was walked into my, my boss, who was also our HR director and one of the most amazing leaders and mentors I've ever had, um, and I just, I, I kind of stomped right in. She was on a call and I had this look on my face, like, it's urgent. It's a thing. 
closed the door and I said, I, I've never, you know, spoken about this in a work context. Um, there was not really any need until it was real, but it's suddenly real. And it just came sort of tumbling out. I'm, it, I'm not, this wasn't pre-planned. This was something we've been in for five years. And now I'm, I'm, you know, we've got these projects coming up and I don't want to, I know I'm, I know that technically I have the protected right to do this under employment law and all that, but that's not the same as company and reputation and needs and all of that. And she just looked at me and immediately she said, helping train some sales staff, saving a life, go say yes. If that's what you want, go say yes, we've, we've got you. And she teed, and it, it just continued on like that. Like the immediacy and authenticity of that response just steeled me and gave me the, the, the exhale to go, I'm going to be okay. Like, I don't have to carry that. I can focus on the thing I need to do right now and know that not only my family and my friends, but my colleagues have my back. And it just sustained through the entire, the surgery, the recovery, coming up with a, a back to work plan. You know, there were a couple of days that my first week or two where there were a few points I was like okay I'm I'm too tired I can't do what I thought I could do no problem so that that kind of ability to put aside you know the the business side of things and the potential inconvenience to a company or to plans and just see and support a, a human thing um, meant a lot to me and it made it so much not just easier but also worry-free to be able to say I can just put my mind to getting into the right headspace to go in and do this to recover from this and to step back into my life when it's done that's a beautiful story I'm so happy that she reacted the way she did and I'm she's so... amazing yeah she's an amazing person yeah well Sarah so are you so from the bottom of my heart thank you for sharing all of this and um, I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to connect. And I thank all of the listeners and watchers, uh, viewers who've been with us through this episode. We'll see you next time at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter or make an important decision or liberate you from whatever's holding you back? At Grant Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice from any place, any time. Visit GrantHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.